Here we go. Roll Here video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmakers is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Behind the Slate. I'm your host, Aaron Strand. I hope you enjoyed the interviews and other fun things we did last month. It was really important for me to have a little extra time to research for this upcoming series, which we're starting today. Uh, So I'll probably keep doing that or something like that going forward. My question to you is, should I stop calling those previous episodes one-reelers? You know, I originally gave them that name because I thought that they would be short little things coming out every other week. But now each episode is usually about an hour long, and it kind of feels confusing to look at the feed and see four one-reelers in a row followed by this episode. I don't know. What do you think? If you have thoughts, please shoot me an email, behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. As always, if you like the work we're doing, be sure to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us with the five stars. It's a little thing that really goes a long way to helping us out. Now... I am so excited because today we are finally getting into our next director. This man is a writer, musician, entrepreneur, playwright, activist, Air Force veteran, filmmaker, and original badass. Over a 50-year career, his work explored themes of race, sexuality, and revolution. His unbridled honesty and indefatigable courage would redefine what it meant to be an independent artist as he blazed a trail for countless black filmmakers and inspired multiple art forms and genres along the way. Of course, I'm talking about Melvin Van Peebles. I can't wait to get into the details of Van Peebles' life. I guarantee that by the end of this series, your jaw will drop at the things this guy did. However, for this first episode, we're not actually going to even get into Mr. Van Peebles' life. Now, now, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you swipe out and go to another podcast, there's a reason for this. When I first started writing this script, it went something like this. Uh, Melvin Van Peebles was born in 1932, and there was Jim Crow segregation and uh, segregation in Hollywood, and uh, Hollywood didn't really care about black characters, and, you know, it was a different time, and, uh, yeah, yeah. And we could tell that story, and that story works, I guess. But it makes a pretty big assumption that we all have some shared agreed-upon notion about the history of race and racism in this country. And considering how today entire high school curriculums are being censored and banned for teaching African-American history, that seems like a dangerous assumption to make. Now, Melvin Van Peebles' work, particularly the three films he made between 1967 and 1971, are incredibly deep and multifaceted pieces of art. And while they're totally enjoyable just on their own, the real depth and revolutionary power can sometimes be really hard for us modern audiences to grasp. Today, conversations about diverse representation in film, stereotyping of black protagonists, and the importance of artists of color being in control of the creative process are comparatively common. But in the late 60s, 
These ideas were so alien to mainstream Hollywood that to express them required an entirely different language. We have words to describe these concepts in large part because of this new filmic language Melvin Van Peebles made. So in order to understand the world before, the pre-Melvin era of American cinema, we need to go way back and to trace the history of black representation in American drama to its very roots. I understand that this story involves incredibly complex and difficult subject matter, which I can't possibly cover in all its detail and nuance. There are no doubt many people more qualified than I to tell this story. I'm just somebody who loves history and who is fascinated by the relationship between the dramatic arts and the world it's supposed to be holding a mirror to. Having said that, let's go back to 1816. William Alexander Brown arrived in the port of Lower Manhattan, hoping to start a new life. As he walked down the gangplank from his ship, he no doubt must have caught a few stares from the dock workers. He was fit well-dressed, with his head held high in dignity. His skin was black, and he was a free man. New York was slower than most other northern states in the abolition of chattel slavery. They passed the first Gradual Emancipation Act in 1799, guaranteeing any child of an enslaved mother would be free after that year. And then again, in the year after William Brown's arrival, they would pass another bill of Gradual Emancipation, Still, most enslaved New Yorkers would not gain freedom until 1827. Already in 1816, the population of free black people in Manhattan was quite large, around 10,000, almost 10% of the city's total population. Brown wasn't like many of these free men. He had been born on St. Vincent, a Caribbean island north of Grenada off the Venezuelan coast. And while slavery wasn't abolished there until 1834, as far as I can find in the sources, he was never enslaved. Instead, he spent his youth working as a ship steward on a British ocean liner, a job that afforded him financial independence and a chance to travel all throughout the Americas and Europe. And now, at the age of 26, he, along with several of his ship steward friends, decided to move to America and make their fortune in the New World. Their decision was certainly a risky one. From even before the Revolution, it was clear to almost everybody that the institution of slavery was a ticking time bomb at the very heart of the American experiment. Shortly after the Revolutionary War, many northern states began to gradually abolish slavery. This was not out of any love or generosity toward African Americans. It was mostly due to lobbying from religious groups who believed institutionalized slavery condemned them all to hell. In the early years of the country, there was a faint hope among liberal-minded moderates that slavery might gradually phase itself out. 
This seemed somewhat confirmed by 1790, when all U.S. states had abolished the transatlantic slave trade. However, these hopes were dashed in 1794, when the cotton gin revolutionized the mass production of cotton fiber. This invention was soon followed by the acquisition of modern-day Alabama and Mississippi from Spain in 1798 and the Louisiana Purchase from France in 1803. Suddenly, vast swaths of arable land perfectly suited to the new cash crop were open to southern enslavers. Within a decade, cotton was to the global economy of the early 19th century what oil is today, and the massive profits made any suggestion of abolition fall on deaf ears. Upon arriving in Manhattan, William Brown bought a house on Thompson Street, about a block and a half above modern-day Canal Street. His keen entrepreneurial eye noticed that the popular New York pleasure gardens, which were outdoor parks filled with tea and ice cream and singers and other entertainments, refused to admit black people. So he opened his own in his backyard. Soon, his house on Thompson Street became the social epicenter of Manhattan's growing black middle class. He would serve food, desserts, tea, and a lot of alcohol. A new and extravagant culture sprung up around this all-black pleasure garden. Author Marvin McAllister notes that the guests performed an exaggerated version of whiteness in their dress and manners, a somewhat ironic display that was indicative of a, quote, growing, sanctioned, black-dominated counterculture. However, white newspapers reported on this novelty with glee and mockery. Let me just say here that I'll be quoting multiple sources throughout the episode that give a racist tone to their reporting. I have purposely omitted the more offensive language, but I still think it's important to get a sense of what people were saying at the time. Here's what they wrote, quote, The gentleman, with his wool nicely combed and his face shining through a coat of sweet oil, borrowed from the casters, cravat tight to suffocation, having the double faculty of widening the mouth and giving a remarkable protuberance to the eyes. These black fashionables saunter up and down the garden in all pride of liberty and unconscious of want. They gave William Brown's pleasure garden a nickname, the African Grove. As the parties grew, Brown kept looking for ways to improve. He began hiring performers to sing, dance, and read poetry. Among these was a man named James Hewlett. Hewlett was also a free man from the Caribbean. He had a natural gift for singing, but aspired to be something more, spending his off nights at the biggest theater in the city, the Park Theater, and from the back of the third floor balcony where the segregated black audience was forced to sit, James Hewlett would watch Shakespeare and take copious notes. At Hewlett's suggestion, Brown expanded the entertainment. The African Grove evolved from songs and poetry to dramatic interludes. These simple scenes became so popular that in 1821, Brown converted the second floor of his building into a performance space and announced the formation of the African Grove Theater Company, the first ever black-owned theater in the United States. They opened in September of that year with a production of Richard III. The text was cut down from its original length, the small company often had actors playing multiple parts, and the titular role was played by James Hewlett, who wore an old curtain as a robe. Despite these humble trappings, the play was a hit. 
Crowds of free and even enslaved black people flocked to see the shows. Among them was a young boy named Ira Aldridge, who was so inspired by seeing Shakespeare on stage, he soon joined the company as an apprentice. However, when white neighbors complained that audiences leaving the shows were making too much noise, city officials shut the venue down. Brown was undeterred. He renamed the group The African Company, and they began performing at different locations throughout the city, staging a variety of plays including farce, pantomime, opera, and of course, Shakespeare. James Hewlett soon became the first documented black man to play the role of Othello, who had for 200 years been played by white actors in dark makeup. Much like they wrote about the African Grove parties, the white press followed the African company closely with fascination and mockery. But the more they wrote about them, the more white people began to fill the crowd. As Jonathan Dewberry writes in an article from the African American Review, quote, Whites had initially found it curious and amusing that a company of black actors was attempting to do Shakespeare. Later, they became very hostile. Groups of white patrons began attending shows to heckle and disrupt the performers. Sometimes William Brown would have to drop the curtain and then threaten to end the night's proceedings early if the crowd couldn't behave themselves. This drew the attention of police, who would try to shut down the theater out of fear that it might spark violence. Newspapers would interview white audience members and print entire oral retellings of the funniest moments and the most glaring mispronunciations of Shakespeare's text. Such descriptions, which I will not read, made frequent use of a mocking African-American dialect and made a point to refer to the actors as, quote, dancing and strutting across the stage. But with the company barely making ends meet, Brown had no choice but to accept that the hecklers and curiosity seekers paid for their tickets like everybody else. He actively courted controversy, going so far as to create a segregated whites-only section in the back of the house labeled, quote, for white people who do not know how to behave at entertainments designed for ladies and gentlemen of color. But he pushed things too far when the company moved to a space next door to the mighty Park Theater. The Park was showing a production of Richard III, starring the great Junius Brutus Booth, who, although English by birth, was really the first great leading man of the American stage and the father of future actor and presidential assassin John Wilkes Booth. William Brown decided that the African Company would stage a competing production of Richard III next door, probably once again in an effort to stoke controversy and sell tickets. Things became dangerous when Park Theater owner Stephen Price paid a group of white men to start a riot during the African company's performance. The men attacked the actors, beating them and ripping off their costumes. They then destroyed the theater, and police once again forced the African company to shut down and move. All this, plus an epidemic of yellow fever in late 1822, took their toll on the African company. For a time, they were forced to perform on street corners just to survive. In 1823, the company staged a benefit show with a play written by William Alexander Brown himself titled The Drama of King Shottaway. It was about the 1795 Black Revolt against British naval forces on St. Vincent and was the first known dramatic work written by a black author in the United States. Sadly, the play is now lost. Shortly after these shows, the press announcements for the African company disappeared from the papers, and William Alexander Brown filed for bankruptcy.
James Hewlett went on to tour throughout the northern states as one of the nation's first black Shakespearean actors. Young Ida Aldridge would leave the country. He moved to London and became one of the most popular and well-known tragedians in Britain and Europe. He became a huge star, the first great black Shakespearean actor. He was the first black theater owner in the UK and is the only black American to have a bronze plaque in the Shakespeare Memorial Theater at Stratford-upon-Avon. With the demise of the African Company, there would not be another black-run theater in the United States for another 60 years. William Alexander Brown faded from history, but the memory of his groundbreaking theater lived on in the minds of the thousands of people who saw his plays, for better and for worse. In 1828, five years after the African Company's last performance, the ongoing fight over slavery was polarizing the nation. With religious fervor, northern abolitionists blamed the slaveholding South for damning the country to sin. In turn, southern enslavers developed an equally religious ideology around slavery. This was a definite shift from what was once referred to as a, quote, peculiar institution into now extolling a racial caste system ordained by God. And into this cauldron of insanity walked one of the most dangerous men of all, an unemployed actor. Thomas Dartmouth Rice was a tall, white, lanky 20-year-old from Manhattan's Lower East Side. He had turned his back on a woodcarver apprenticeship to chase his dream, but had now been traveling for years across the country and had only managed to land the odd gig singing comedic songs between the acts of other plays. Desperate for his big break, he developed a new performance, one that he was sure, if nothing else, would leave an impression. So on a return trip to his hometown of New York City, where he had a slot at Stephen Price's Park Theater, he decided to try out his new number. Backstage, he dressed in ragged clothes, dilapidated boots, and pulled a straw hat over a dense black wig of matted moss. Imitating several performers he had seen in his southern travels, he used burnt cork to darken his hands and face. And when it was time to walk on stage, he shuffled with a slow, stilted limp. He stood there, hunched, his eyes shining in the light of the gas lanterns with a vacant, dim-witted stare. In an article from Atlantic Monthly, written decades later, journalist Robert Nevin writes, quote, The extraordinary apparition produced an instant effect. The crash of peanuts ceased in the pit, and through the circles passed a murmur and a bustle of liveliest expectation. The orchestra opened with a short prelude, and to its accompaniment, Rice began to sing. This was, of course, done in a crude imitation of enslaved African-American vernacular, which I will not recreate. Quote, Jim Crow's come to town, as you all must know. I wheel about and turn about and do just so. Every time I wheel about, I jump Jim Crow. Nevin continues, quote, 
The effect was electric. Such a thunder of applause as followed was never heard before within the shell of that old theater. With each succeeding couplet and refrain, the uproar was renewed, until presently, when the performer, gathering courage from the favorable temper of his audience, ventured to improvise matter for his distiches from familiarly known local incidents. The demonstrations were deafening. There are various stories of this act's origin. Some say Rice copied it from a young boy or a physically disabled enslaved person who worked in a Louisville stable for a white enslaver named Crow. However, these narratives all credit Rice as the creative force behind the character Jim Crow. In truth, the Jim Crow persona can be linked all the way back to West African folk traditions, where trickster deities, usually in the form of animals such as crows or rabbits, would use their wits and cleverness to trick humans into getting what they want. Upon their forced journey to the Americas, these stories evolved into survival myths with characters that would eventually come to be known as Jim Crow and Br'er Rabbit. These stories were allowed within the enslaved community as childish tales of anthropomorphized tricksters, but they contained hidden knowledge. These stories were teaching people how to outsmart their oppressors, oftentimes showing them that to feign ignorance was a great way of avoiding extra labor or violence. Now, the same thing goes for the shuffling dance and movement that Rice supposedly copied from a physically disabled enslaved person. In reality, he was most likely copying dance moves that have their own long and brutal history within the enslaved culture of America. During the dreaded Middle Passage across the Atlantic, slave traders looked for ways to keep their human cargo alive and looking fit to bring the best price at market. A British surgeon and eventual anti-slavery activist, Dr. Thomas Trotter, reported while working on a slave ship in 1783, quote, After the morning meals came a joyless ceremony called Dancing the Slaves. Those who were in irons were ordered to stand up and make what motions they could, leaving a passage for such as were out of irons to dance around the deck. In case it needs to be said, all of this was, of course, done under the threat of violence, usually a cat of nine tails. And this practice would continue upon arrival. Quote-unquote, dancing the slaves would be continued to maintain fitness and provide white enslavers with entertainment. But in order to retain control beyond just a threat of violence, strange laws and customs were developed. In many places, enslaved people were forbidden from crossing their feet or from the use of drums, these restrictions eventually leading to the development of soft shoe and tap dancing. When forbidden from dancing at religious ceremonies, enslaved people created the ring shout, in which worshippers would shuffle in a circle, stomping their feet, clapping their hands, and shouting in call and response. Historian Sterling Stuckey, in his seminal book, Slave Culture, Nationalist Theory and Foundations of Black America, argues that the ring shout was the precursor to field hollers, work songs, spirituals, and eventually blues, jazz, and modern black church ceremonies. But while all of this no doubt played a part in Thomas Rice's Jim Crow Act, I will speculate on another influence. Now, this is completely my own theory. There is absolutely no evidence for this, but just think about it with me for a second. Thomas Rice was born in Manhattan. 
He would have been 13 years old at the time of the African company's first performance and was living less than a mile away. For a teenage theater kid, I find it hard to believe that he did not know about those shows. And even if he didn't attend in person, he most likely read some of the dozens of mocking newspaper articles written about them. The particular way those white papers chose to mock the black Shakespeareans with their exaggerated dialect and exotic movements seem to, in my opinion, have made a big impression on the mind of young T.D. Rice. Perhaps it's no coincidence that he chose to premiere his character at the very theater who helped shut the African company down. Regardless of whether this is true or not, I can't help but think of our modern conversations around cultural appropriation in art. Sometimes I'll admit that these topics can feel a bit reactionary and overblown, but it's examples like these that show why these conversations are important. Because art has power. And even if we were to be generous and say that Rice did this with pure intentions of just trying to get a laugh, trying to bring a smile to someone's face, trying to connect with an audience in some kind of meaningful way, in the process of making art, you can turn a piece of culture into a weapon. And that's what Thomas Rice did. I don't think he was any more racist than any other white New Yorker in the 1820s. It's not saying much, but still. I think deep down, he was just trying to make it as an artist. And by instinct or accident, he got what most artists dream about. He found himself the poster boy of a cultural phenomenon. And just like any other cultural phenomenon, there is an undeniable political dimension. Rice's act physicalized the deepest fantasies of a white audience by giving them a theatricalized embodiment of white control over a black body. He took genuine expressions of black sovereignty and flattened them into a one-dimensional clown, and they loved him for it. Jump Jim Crow became an instant hit, and Rice became an international star. He changed his name to T.D. Daddy Rice, and for the next 20 years, he would perform his Jim Crow character across the U.S. and Great Britain. He changed the act, depending on the audience. When touring the Protestant North, his Jim Crow character might give a subtle nod to abolition, when in the South, he extolled the virtues of enslavement. In the early 1840s, Daddy Rice's feigned Jim Crow limp became more pronounced. He began to miss shows and struggled to keep up with his touring schedule. After some performances, he had to be helped off the stage, unable to walk on his own. A mysterious paralysis slowly spread throughout his body. And over the next 15 years, the man who made his fame by pretending to be a cripple became one. The paralysis spread throughout his legs, his arms, eventually taking his ability to speak until finally in 1860, T.D. Rice died at the age of 52. I can't help but think that the trickster gods of old might just have come back and had their revenge. Unfortunately, it was too late. The damage was already done. While performers had been wearing the makeup known as blackface in American and European theaters for centuries, it was Rice's popularity that led to the first uniquely American form of entertainment. 
1843, American songwriter Dan Emmett, along with three other musicians, imitated Rice's blackface act, calling themselves, quote, the Virginia Minstrels, minstrel being a medieval English term for a traveling musician or poet. Thus, the American Minstrel Show was born, and while you've probably never heard of Dan Emmett, I can guarantee you've heard his most famous musical creation. I wish I was in the land of cotton, old time sir, I'm not for cotton. Look away, look away, look away, Dixieland, in Dixieland, where I was born in early on one frosty morning. Look away, look away, look away, Dixieland, I wish I was in the following year, 1844, an imitation of Dan Emmett's minstrels called the Ethiopian Serenaders performed at the White House for president and slave owner John Tyler. The format was developed further by Edwin Christie, who introduced a three-act structure complete with comedic skits, songs, speeches, and dancing, most famously, the cakewalk. Now, of all the dance traditions that were developed within the culture of slavery, the cakewalk has to be the most bizarre. You might be familiar with the terms, it's not a cakewalk, or he takes the cake. These phrases come from a tradition in which plantation owners and guests watched and cheered as enslaved men and women were forced to dance together in a tight square formation, all while performing an exaggerated imitation of the manners, attitudes, and walk of the white enslavers. Their performance would be judged on how exaggerated their movements and manners could be while still tightly and smoothly turning the corners of the dancing square. Moves included a high-legged prance, a raised chin, and tilted back torsos. The prize for this performative role reversal? A large, decorated cake. In the minstrel show, the cakewalk was repackaged for a wide audience. The square shape was abandoned for what we would now see as a modern dance battle, with participants taking turns, trying to one-up each other, and get the biggest reaction from the crowd. In his 1967 book, Black Magic, A Pictorial History of Black Entertainers in America, writer Langston Hughes wrote, quote, Hundreds of white minstrels performing in burnt cork borrowed not only the Southern Negro's songs, but his dance steps, his jokes, and his simple way of speech as well, which they distorted into what became known as, quote, Negro dialect. White entertainers, North and South, literally made millions of dollars from Negro material. The Negroes themselves, barred from most theaters as spectators and segregated in others, could seldom see a minstrel show, and at the same time, they were not allowed to perform in them. The minstrel show's three-act format was facilitated by a company of stock characters whose legacy would shape black representation in popular culture and film up until the present day. Among these racist characterizations were Mr. Interlocutor, the verbose and overly dignified leader of the group, Mr. Tambo and Mr. Bones, the buffoonish endman who sat on either end of the semicircle of actors, exchanging jokes, songs, and slapstick clowning, often interrupting and ruining Mr. Interlocutor's plans. There was the Mammy, a matronly older black woman who served as a surrogate mother for the perfect plantation family the mulatto, a sexually promiscuous light-skinned woman, and the dandy, often named Zip Coon, 
an ostentatious, freed slave whose vain attempts at dignity were undercut by his own ignorance. From the 1850s to the 1870s, minstrel shows became ubiquitous on stages in both the North and the South. It wasn't until the 1890s that vaudeville gradually replaced blackface minstrelsy. But the format would endure well into the 20th century. Many beloved American movie stars would appear in blackface, including, but not limited to, Shirley Temple, Judy Garland, the Marx Brothers, the Three Stooges, Buster Keaton, Mickey Rooney, and of course, Al Jolson, whose blackface performance in 1927's The Jazz Singer revolutionized sound cinema. The practice would continue to live on through the mid-20th century through performances such as Fred Astaire in Swing Time, Laurence Olivier in Othello, Sophia Loren in Aida, and Joni Mitchell on the cover of her 1977 album, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. A primetime BBC show in the UK called The Black and White Minstrel Show, featuring white actors in full blackface, averaged 18 million viewers a week from 1958 to 1978. Of course, blackface continues to appear up until the present day. I could spend an hour just listing example after example. In every case, one could reference what Frederick Douglass wrote way back in 1848, only a few years after the birth of the minstrel show. This is from an editorial in his newspaper, The North Star. Quote, the filthy scum of white society who have stolen from us a complexion denied to them by nature in which to make money and pander to the corrupt taste of their white fellow citizens. And while it's somewhat easy to point out the white supremacist origins of the minstrel show and to judge the continuation of its imagery, things get a lot more complicated when we look under the surface and see what was going on in the show's at the time they were being performed. Back in the 1850s, these shows could become vehicles for political satire, and at times, depending on the artists and the audience, were even vehicles critiquing slavery. For many Northerners who were living in an almost completely white society, minstrel shows were their only quote-unquote contact with people of color. The shows gave them a reference point when abolitionists came trying to convince them of the horrors of slavery. The same goes for working-class immigrants and Western pioneers, where often the shows took on different characters, sometimes adding in European or native peoples that reflected their own lived experience. The result, as unpleasant and strange as it might sound to us, was that those audiences were able to find joy and even identify with enslaved characters whom they would otherwise have had no contact with. To make it even weirder, after the Civil War, black performers joined or formed minstrel shows, wearing blackface. And while it is undoubtedly cruel and dehumanizing that this was the only way for black performers to find an audience, this was how some incredible black artists had to make a living in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s. In fact, black minstrels in some cases became even more popular with white audiences than white minstrels because people thought their shows were more authentic, even though they were performing the same grotesque caricatures created by whites. It gets even stranger. Building on the notion that this was a safe place where you could change your appearance, the minstrel shows became the only acceptable stage for hundreds, if not thousands, of quote-unquote female impersonators. 
Behind the mask of the promiscuous female mulatto character, male actors were lauded for their authentic and attractive female performances. Referred to as prima donnas, these people were some of the few examples of queer representation in American life. One such actor, who was so famous he became known by one name, Leon, and then later renamed himself the only Leon, just to make sure everyone knew, was for a time the highest paid performer in the country. And then, of course, there's the cultural legacy that the minstrel show has left. In the realm of comedy, it was through the minstrel show that actors combined elements of clowning and commedia dell'arte and reshaped them into the groundwork of what would become the American institutions of vaudeville, sketch comedy, and modern stand-up. In the realm of music, the minstrel shows forced mostly white songwriters to fuse their European training with quote-unquote authentic African musical traditions. Stephen Foster, known as the father of American music, single-handedly wrote much of the early American songbook, including Oh Susanna, Camptown Races, Polly Wally Doodle, Old Folks at Home, and Hard Times Come Again No More, all for minstrel shows. Then there's the realm of dance. The minstrel shows gave rise to tap, soft shoe, and a early form of jazz. The minstrel show Cakewalk pioneered the format that is still used in modern dance competitions. On his tour of the United States in 1842, author Charles Dickens was brought to the notorious dance halls of Five Points in Lower Manhattan. There, he wrote about seeing a young black dancer. Quote, Five or six couple come upon the floor, marshaled by a lively young Negro who is the wit of the assembly and the greatest dancer known. Single shuffle, double shuffle, cut and cross cut, snapping his fingers, rolling his eyes, turning in his knees, presenting the backs of his legs in the front, spinning about on his toes and heels like nothing but the man's fingers on the tambourine, dancing with two left legs, two right legs, two wooden legs, two wire legs, two spring legs, all sorts of legs and no legs. What is this to him? And in what walk of life or dance of life does man ever get such stimulating applause as thunders about him when having danced his partner off her feet and himself too, he finishes by leaping gloriously on the bar counter and calling for something to drink with the chuckle of a million of counterfeit Jim Crows in one inimitable sound. Little did Dickens know that he was witnessing an impromptu performance of William Henry Lane a free man who was the first to combine African-American dance with Irish jigs and reels. Lane would go on to defeat John Diamond, the best white minstrel dancer at the time, in a cakewalk, after which Lane became known as Master Juba, king of all dancers. Donning blackface in order to compete, Lane would go on to dominate the world of popular dance. He was so skilled, he could imitate the dances of his competitors, often performing their own moves and styles better than they could. He was the first African-American ever to receive top billing in a minstrel show, and would tour all over Europe as the greatest dancer in the world. He was the first black dancer ever to perform in Britain, and in London's 1848 season, he was the most written about performer of the year. Sadly, as a byproduct of his immense success, minstrel blackface spread throughout Britain and mainland Europe. 
He is considered the father of tap for his incorporation of percussive steps and rhythm. But his incredible innovations also led to the development of ragtime and jazz. Lane eventually moved to London, married an Englishwoman, and opened a dance school. Sadly, we don't know the details, but Lane died in London in 1852. He was only 27 years old. When I think about this and the whole difficult history of the minstrel show, it's just a powerful reminder of how racism is structural and not simply based upon the opinions of individuals. The institution of minstrelsy set the mode and means through which black identity was allowed to exist within popular culture in America. The artistic innovations that came as a result were not dependent on minstrelsy's racist underpinnings. They were the result of an inevitable cross-pollination that comes from living in a diverse society. But because these innovations were only allowed to inhabit a space of minstrelsy, countless artists and entire art forms were forced into an ideological expression of white supremacy, which was totally unnecessary to the actual entertainment. This structural power was never more evident than in the 1850s when the minstrel show suddenly found itself in competition with another racially charged theatrical production. When Connecticut-born abolitionist Harriet Beecher Stowe published her novel Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1851, she was attempting to move other whites to the anti-slavery cause. Now, I understand that her legacy is somewhat controversial, but I think it is beyond doubt to say that for many readers in 1851, Uncle Tom's Cabin was both radical and progressive. It used early Victorian morality and Protestant Christianity to promote racial and gender equality while also critiquing the capitalist system that allowed slavery to flourish. And while the implicit cultural biases undoubtedly doomed the character of Uncle Tom to later interpretation, it is clear that Stowe intended her protagonist to be a noble, Christ-like hero who dies with a tragic yet unimpeachable moral superiority that would move readers to his cause. The novel received praise and support from abolitionist activists like Frederick Douglass, while also garnering criticism for appropriating slave narratives from black leaders such as Martin Delaney, who is a fascinating figure from history. He was born free. He was a doctor, a writer, a scholar. During the Civil War, he raised an all-black militia to go and fight. Just an incredible human. Regardless, Stowe achieved her goal of spreading abolitionism, and the book became a literary sensation. It was widely credited with moving many Northern whites to the abolitionist cause. Supposedly, when Abraham Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe in 1862, he said, quote, So this is the little lady who started this great war. That quote is somewhat disputed, but, you know, it speaks to something true. And while it was a publishing sensation at the time, most Americans became familiar with Uncle Tom's Cabin not through Stowe's book, but through stage performances. Now, at first, these shows were faithful to the original material. However, without any copyright or licensing laws to protect the story, Stowe soon saw her progressive tale fall prey to the all-encompassing power of the minstrel show. In what came to be called Tom Shows, the story of Uncle Tom's Cabin was transformed into a song and dance spectacle, oftentimes whitewashing or glorifying slavery in the process. 
This practice became even more pronounced after the Civil War. The plot was rewritten, the characters were transformed into racist cartoons, and thus, for the latter part of the 19th century, a bizarre fusion of minstrelsy and Uncle Tom became lodged in the culture, turning the once Christ-like character into a slur for black subservience toward a white oppressor. In 1903, director Edwin S. Porter of the Edison Company adapted Uncle Tom's Cabin into one of the earliest narrative films ever made. It was basically a filmed version of a Tom show that featured white actors in blackface. It goes down in history as the first ever silent film to use interscene title cards to help further the story, but it is most remembered as the film Porter made just before he shot The Great Train Robbery, which, as we've discussed in our previous Chaplin series, was a groundbreaking achievement in dramatic cinema. But why did it happen this way? Why did minstrelsy, an art form born of pre-Civil War polarization, survive into 20th century America? To answer this incredibly complex question with a personal simplification, I want to share a little story. I went to high school in Georgia, and even in 2006, we were being taught that the Civil War had many different causes. Yes, slavery was one of them, but at the end of the day, it was really more about states' rights. That was a total load of shit. For the record, if anyone is arguing that the Civil War was over states' rights, just bring up the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. This vastly increased the power of the federal government, granting them the ability to go into any city and arrest any suspected escaped slave and kidnap them back into servitude. Southern states weren't complaining about the breach in states' rights then. Now I, like many white Southerners, have multiple blood relatives that fought for the Confederacy. And while the genealogy is a little uncertain, it's been told in my family for generations that we were related to the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander H. Stevens. I don't say this with particular pride. It's a bit like admitting you're related to Joseph Goebbels. I bring this up because Alexander H. Stevens summed up the truth of the Confederate cause in 1861 when he said to a crowd in Savannah, Georgia, quote, our new government's foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth, that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. Our new government is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. Thanks, Uncle. Glad you could clear that up for us. You can go back to hell now. But of course, in 1865, the Confederate South was in ruins. Many of us think of the Civil War as some kind of old-timey relic told in florid letters in a Ken Burns documentary. Or maybe in high school, you had to go on a, a tour of some random field in the middle of the countryside, and you were told that there was a battle fought there. But we have to remember that the American Civil War was the first modern war. It was the precursor, the, the prelude to the horrors of World War I. It was the first major combat action to feature machine guns, long-range artillery, trench warfare, heavy armor, and rifled barrels. The South, which before the war was twice as wealthy on a per capita basis, would now be in poverty for a century. The cities were burned, the railroads destroyed, the fields had either been burned or left fallow. The South 
instituted a near total conscription of its fighting age white male population, leading to 500,000 casualties. One in four Confederate soldiers didn't make it home. For any society, regardless of their government's racist ideology, this is devastating. And one doesn't have to look too far in history to see that defeated countries, in the immediate aftermath of a brutal war, usually fall into chaos. The economy crumbles, there's a power vacuum, ideological confusion, and a bunch of veterans accustomed to violence walking around. This is a story as old as time. Now throw into this that about 50% of your population, over 4 million African Americans, just a few months ago were considered subhuman in a position of inescapable bondage. And now you have to rebuild together. Considering these things, you can begin to imagine the truly mind-boggling list of problems facing post-war America. Things start off badly when in the midst of all this chaos, President Lincoln, the one guy people believed might actually be able to pull this job off, gets killed by the worst Nepo baby of them all, John Wilkes Booth. So in the wake of Lincoln's assassination, Northerners are furious and want revenge. Lincoln's successor, Vice President Andrew Johnson, was a Southerner who had talked a big game about hanging Confederates and forcing the South to comply. Now that he's president, he turns out to be a complete racist and Southern sympathizer who refuses to prosecute war criminals and tries to stymie any civil rights legislation any chance he could. We could literally spend hours talking about this, but to paint in broad strokes, much like Weimar Germany at the end of the First World War, many Southerners were shocked and embarrassed by what had happened. As late as 1863, they thought they were winning the war, and all of a sudden, everything they fought for had been destroyed. And now, their enemy is telling them to rebuild a functioning society with a group of people whom they had been taught were biologically, mentally, and spiritually inferior. And just like in Weimar Germany, this was a breeding ground for reactionary and violent politics. Groups of former soldiers formed a white supremacist insurgency that launched campaigns of terrorism and guerrilla-style violence against black communities and white collaborators. In 1866, the year after the war ends, one of these groups under the direction of former Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest came to be known as the Ku Klux Klan. In order to hide their identity and increase the terror, the KKK operated at night, dressing in bizarre, homemade outfits that resembled old-timey Halloween costumes. Over two years, the Klan killed thousands of people and injured even more. 2,000 African Americans were killed in Louisiana alone. In a single Florida county, the Klan killed over 150. In response to the violence, the federal government sent in troops, establishing a military occupation over much of the South. This only furthered the resentment toward those they called carpetbaggers, northerners who came to the South to steal its wealth, and scalawags, southerners who collaborated with their northern oppressors. But their greatest ire was, of course, to the African-American population. By 1868, the KKK's disorganized command structure had descended into chaos. 
Common criminals were using Klan outfits to commit other crimes. Federal troops were killing and arresting Klansmen. In 1870, a federal grand jury declared the group a terrorist organization. By 1871, President Ulysses S. Grant signed the Ku Klux Klan Act, which suspended habeas corpus and allowed federal prosecutors to occupy Klan-heavy territory under the Insurrection Act. 5,000 indictments and over a thousand convictions later, and the Ku Klux Klan was all but over. America's racial violence was not. The 1876 presidential election between conservative Democrat Samuel Tilden and progressive Republican Rutherford B. Hayes ended with neither candidate receiving enough electoral college votes to win the presidency. Four states returned disputed electoral vote counts. Three of those states were in the South. A compromise was struck between the Republicans in the North and the Democrats in the South, with Southern Democrats agreeing to give their electoral votes to Hayes. He won the presidency with 185 electoral votes to Tilden's 184. In return, Hayes promised to remove all U.S. military forces from former Confederate states and allow Southern lawmakers to treat their black citizens however they wanted without Northern interference. Some, such as Atlanta newspaper editor Henry Grady, proclaimed this to be the beginning of the New South, in which industrialization and racial cooperation would lead the Southern states to become more profitable and more powerful than ever before. In an 1886 speech to a group of New York industrialists, he proclaimed, quote, But what of the Negro? Have we solved the problem he presents or progressed in honor and equity towards solution? Let the record speak to the point. No section shows a more prosperous laboring population than the Negroes of the South, none in fuller sympathy with the employing and landowning class. He shares our school fund, has the fullest protection of our laws, and the friendship of our people. The relations of the Southern people with the Negro are close and cordial. This, of course, was all a lie. Hoping to attract investment to the city of Atlanta, Grady told the Northern audience what they wanted to hear. To a more sympathetic crowd in Texas in 1889, Grady would be more forthcoming. Quote, The supremacy of the white race of the South must be maintained forever, because the white race is the superior race. And this is where we see the true, sinister power of the minstrel show. In the aftermath of the Civil War, these plays were transformed into nostalgia-laced time capsules. Within the magical confines of the theater, a distorted and delusional vision of the antebellum South was allowed to survive. A fever dream in which African Americans were benign, ever-cheerful musicians who willingly submitted to their own bondage, placing an ideological veneer over the violence of chattel slavery, war, and Reconstruction insurgency. In the decades after the war, when the minstrel and Tom shows were at their zenith, the character of Jim Crow would be transformed once again. In 1884, the Sioux City Journal of Iowa published a description of a congressional debate around the desegregation of private passenger trains, with a Republican House member saying that he would not stand up for the, quote, Jim Crow law of Georgia. This is the first known mention of Jim Crow laws, but it seems that the term was already well-established slang. This term, 
Jim Crow laws described a complex web of state legislation that encoded the segregation, voter suppression, and economic, political, and educational disenfranchisement of black people. But Jim Crow was more than just a legal framework. It was an entire unspoken social system that was meant to regulate the behavior of both black and white people in the South. The ultimate goal was to trap African Americans forever behind the mask of Thomas Rice's caricature. By the year 1900, legal segregation had been upheld by the Supreme Court. Many Southern African Americans looked to leaders like Booker T. Washington, who advocated for a policy of gradual advancement in black wealth and education, rather than a direct challenge to Jim Crow. But even this accommodating policy was enough to fuel the fear and hatred of neo-Confederates, who believed that an upwardly mobile black population was a threat to white hegemony. Thomas Dixon Jr. was a Baptist minister. A gifted speaker, he went on lecture tours, and it's estimated that over 5 million people heard him talk throughout the 1890s. While touring across the northern states, Dixon attended a true-to-the-book performance of Uncle Tom's Cabin. He later wrote, quote, I wept at the play's misrepresentation of Southerners. Thomas Dixon Jr. was an avowed racist. He had grown up watching both his father and uncle be a part of the Ku Klux Klan. His speaking career was defined by using Christian doctrine to support white supremacy. As he sat in the theater, crying about how unfairly the white slaveholders were being portrayed, Dixon vowed then and there to tell the true story of the South. And in 1902, he released a novel titled The Leopard's Spots, after a biblical passage in the book of Jeremiah that reads, quote, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? The work is more summed up by the subtitle, quote, A Romance of the White Man's Burden. Intended as an unofficial sequel to Uncle Tom's Cabin, the book portrays black men not as Christ-like, but as the most dangerous people on earth. He took the now universal minstrel caricatures and infused them with an over-the-top violence and lechery that if it wasn't for his single-minded white supremacy might be read almost as parody. In the novel, he romanticized the legacy of the KKK as the only people capable of defending civilization from what he saw as its greatest threat, black male sexuality. Now, the fear and fetishization of black sexuality has a long history rooted in the grotesque sexual power dynamics present in every enslaved-enslaver relationship throughout history. Now, I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but to sum it up, at any point in history, America, ancient Rome, Babylon, wherever, the story of slavery is the story of rape mostly perpetrated by male enslavers against enslaved women, sometimes men, but mostly enslaved women. But this sexual violence seemed to bring with it a pathological fear in the mind of the abuser, the paranoia that one day the things you've done might just be done to you or your family. In America, this fear was coupled with the practice of systematically forced breeding among the enslaved population to increase birth rates and maximize profits. The result is a false belief that black men were sexually promiscuous and violent. For Thomas Dixon Jr., this fear was an all-out obsession. 
For the rest of his life, he would again and again write with horror about black men trying to seduce and or rape white women and the violence required to stop them. The following is a graphic passage from his first book describing what the Klan did to a black man who asked a white woman to kiss him. Feel free to skip about 30 seconds ahead if you'd rather not hear this. Quote, when the sun rose the next morning, the lifeless body of Tim Shelby was dangling from a rope tied to the iron rail of the balcony of the courthouse. His neck was broken, and his body was hanging low, scarcely three feet from the ground. His thick lips had been split with a sharp knife, and from his teeth hung a placard that read, The answer of the Anglo-Saxon race to Negro lips that dare pollute with words the womanhood of the South. Signed, KKK. Dixon followed the leopard spots with a second book, titled The Klansman, which tells a romanticized story of the creation of the KKK to defend the South against greedy northern politicians and violent freed slaves. Hoping to top the popularity of Uncle Tom's Cabin, Dixon, with the help of a correspondence course on playwriting, adapted his book into a play. With a theatrical eye, he replaced the Klan's ragtag Halloween costumes with opulent white robes, and inspired by his family's Scottish tradition of Cran Tara, wherein a large wooden object was used to rally people to an assembly, he invented a powerful visual symbol that would inspire nightmares for decades to come, the Burning Cross. Funding his own touring production of the play, he mounted a guerrilla marketing campaign, Whenever the Klansman was coming to a town, four horsemen dressed in white robes would ride through the city, throwing out flyers. The blowback was swift. The Washington Post ran an editorial that read, quote, The play does not possess even the merit of historic truth. It is as false as Uncle Tom's Cabin and a hundred times more wicked, for it excites the passions and prejudices of the dominant class at the expense of the defenseless minority. Despite the criticism, the Klansman was a massive hit across the South, drawing record crowds wherever it went and leaving in its wake a trail of blood. In Bainbridge, Georgia, a black man was lynched after the play with a newspaper article plainly stating, quote, Lynching laid to the Klansman. Georgia mob, wrought up by Dixon's story, hangs Negro murderer. In Springfield, Missouri, three black men were lynched in April 1906, quote, the mob seemed filled with the spirit of the Klansmen, which created a strong anti-Negro feeling here six weeks ago. Dixon laughed off these accusations as, quote, the acme of absurdity, claiming that his play actually reduced lynchings. Then, in early September, the Klansmen premiered in Atlanta. In the weeks after the performance, local newspapers published unsubstantiated rumors about four white women who were either molested or raped by black men. Antagonism bubbled until September 24th, when a newspaper was published with the headline, quote, It is time to act, men. Will you do your duty now? Sporadic violence broke out in downtown Atlanta as several dozen white men and boys began attacking black men at random. Soon, crowds of whites were attacking every black person in sight, pulling them off streetcars, beating them, stabbing them, shooting them. 
extra editions of the papers came out that afternoon, doubling down on the claims, and by midnight, 10 to 15,000 white men had gathered in the streets of downtown and began systematically moving through black neighborhoods, attacking anyone they encountered. Black businesses were vandalized, destroyed, and burned. On Marietta Street, beneath a statue of Henry Grady, three corpses were piled. The grim reality of the New South laid at his feet. The governor deployed the local militia, but they were mostly concerned about a black counterattack rather than the white-led violence. On September 26th, a group of African Americans met near Clark University armed for defense. The Fulton County police marched against them. In the ensuing shootout, more people were killed and over 250 African Americans were arrested. The Atlanta Race Massacre, as it is now known, took the lives of anywhere from 25 to 40 African Americans. Countless more were injured and two whites were also confirmed dead. In the aftermath, Atlanta Mayor James G. Woodward said, quote, The only remedy is to remove the cause. As long as the black brutes assault our white women, just so long will they be unceremoniously dealt with. No evidence of black assault on white women was ever proven. The lie of racial progress in the New South was over. Later that year, the incoming Georgia governor, Hoke Smith, who was suspected of having planted the fake newspaper stories to drum up political support, instituted a literacy test for voting that disenfranchised most African Americans from the polls. Sociologist, historian, and activist W.E.B. Du Bois, who was teaching at Atlanta University at the time of the massacre, wrote a poem titled The Litany of Atlanta. Part of it reads, quote, Bewildered we are, and passion-tossed, mad with the madness of a mobbed and mocked and murdered people. Straining at the armposts of thy throne, we raise our shackled hands and charge thee, God, by the bones of our stolen fathers, by the tears of our dead mothers, by the very blood of thy crucified Christ, what meaneth this? Tell us the plan, give us the sign, keep not thou silence, O God. Sit no longer blind, Lord God, deaf to our prayer and dumb to our dumb suffering. Surely thou too art not white, O Lord, a pale, bloodless, heartless thing. The massacre pushed Du Bois to break away from Booker T. Washington's policies and instead advocate that a direct confrontation with and dismantling of systemic racism was the only path forward. Within a few years, he would be one of the founding members of the NAACP. But while Du Bois saw nothing but horror in the Atlanta streets, others saw an opportunity. In 1911, pioneering film director William F. Haddock attempted to adapt the Klansmen into a film using an experimental color film technique called Kinemacolor. Only a reel and a half was shot before the project ran out of money. The executives at Kinemacolor showed the footage to several industry insiders, hoping to save the film. It caught the eye of screenwriter and critic Frank E. Woods, who brought the unfinished work to D.W. Griffith. 
We spoke at length about Griffith in part two of our series on Charlie Chaplin, and in light of his vast contributions to the medium prior to 1915, that was a mostly positive portrayal of a shining star who raised motion pictures from a dirty backroom oddity to the most popular entertainment on earth. But bright stars can cast long shadows. After seeing the footage, Griffith, whose father was a colonel in the Confederate Army, met personally with Klansman author Thomas Dixon Jr. He agreed to pay him $2,500 and 25% equity for the rights to the book. Using Dixon's play script with few alterations, Griffith began filming on the 4th of July, 1914. His original budget swelled from $40,000 to over $100,000, and after several previews and recuts, the Klansman was ominously retitled The Birth of a Nation. It's impossible to understate just how big of an impact this film had, both on society and on the entire history of motion pictures. Over the film's nearly three-hour runtime, Griffith implemented the countless innovations he had developed over his years directing shorts, including tracking shots, lighting effects, camera movement, dramatic close-ups, cross-cutting between parallel action, fade-outs, battle sequences with hundreds of extras, and a story that culminated in a thrilling race against time climax. In addition to these camera and story effects, the film was accompanied by a revolutionary orchestral score that included works by classical composers such as Beethoven and Wagner, American classics such as the Star-Spangled Banner and the Battle Hymn of the Republic, as well as original music. Musician and scholar DJ Spooky has called the score, quote, an early pivotal accomplishment in remix culture. Now, I'm sure most of you know of this film and have heard about its technical innovations, but how many of you have actually seen it? I would imagine that the percentage is pretty small. And frankly, I say, good. You shouldn't have to watch this just for the sake of cinema homework. At the same time, I do think we should all know just how fucked up this movie is. Because people will still try to defend it, saying that the film is not so racist, just a, a product of its time. So... To spare you from ever having to sit through this three-hour white supremacist fever dream, I'm going to give you the plot synopsis, because I think it's important to know the content before we talk about the effects. The film is divided into two parts. The first part starts just before the outbreak of the Civil War. It juxtaposes a northern abolitionist family, the Stonemans, with a southern confederate family, the Camerons. The Cameron's youngest son, Ben, falls in love with the Stoneman's daughter, Elsie, played by Lillian Gish. However, they are torn apart by the Civil War. Over a series of battles, many of the children of both families die. However, Ben, while carrying a picture of his beloved Elsie, is wounded in a heroic charge at the Siege of Petersburg. He is taken to a hospital in D.C. where he is reunited with Elsie, who is working as a nurse. Elsie helps Ben's mother persuade President Lincoln to pardon her son, and everything seems perfect. But when Lincoln is assassinated, Elsie's father, Austin Stoneman, and other radical Reconstructionists vow to punish the South. Then there's an intermission. And then things get really fucking crazy. Austin Stoneman, the Northern Reconstructionist, goes to South Carolina with his mixed-race protege, Silas Lynch, who is shown to be a scheming, lecherous villain. 
they helped the black community, of course, all played by white actors in blackface, to stuff ballot boxes and deny white people the right to vote, resulting in Lynch being elected lieutenant governor. As black people take over the South Carolina legislature, they are shown engaging in various negative stereotyped behaviors, such as drinking liquor, eating fried chicken, and putting their bare feet on the benches of the state house. Having recovered from his wounds, Ben watches a group of white children dress up as ghosts to scare a group of black children. Inspired by this, he forms the Ku Klux Klan, but as a result, the northerner Elsie breaks up with him. While going to fetch water one day, Ben's sister Flora is assaulted by a freed black man named Gus. He chases her into a forest until she arrives at a cliff. Preferring death over rape, she jumps and dies in her brother's arms. He gathers his fellow clansmen and hunts down Gus, lynching him for his actions. Learning of Gus's murder, Lieutenant Governor Lynch orders a crackdown on the Klan and passes legislation allowing mixed-race marriages. Ben's father is discovered with Klan regalia, but is rescued by the elder Stoneman's son, Phil. They are saved in the woods by two sympathetic Union soldiers with an inner title that reads, quote, The enemies of North and South are united again in common defense of their Aryan birthright. Elsie goes to Lieutenant Governor Lynch to ask that he not charge the elder Stoneman, but Lynch, who has been lusting after Elsie all along, tries to assault her, causing her to faint. When her father comes over, Lynch hides her unconscious body in another room. He tells Austin Stoneman that he wants to marry a white woman. At first, Stoneman is happy, but when Lynch reveals that it's his daughter, Stoneman regrets his encouragement. Having revived, Elsie breaks a window and screams for help. Her cries are heard by two Klansmen spies, before she is once again attacked by Lynch, who gags and binds her. Ben leads a group of Klansmen, capturing Lynch and rescuing Elsie. Meanwhile, Lynch's black militia surrounds the elder Cameron and Phil Stoneman in the woods. The Klansmen, with Ben at their lead, race to their aid and save them just in time. At the next election day, a group of black people find a line of armed Klansmen outside of their homes and are intimidated into not voting. The film ends with a double wedding. Margaret Cameron marries Phil Stoneman and Elsie Stoneman marries Ben Cameron. The film resolves with two tableaus. The first is a mass of dead bodies, mostly black soldiers, coupled by a writhing crowd as a mounted godlike figure swings a sword at them. The second is the celebratory wedding with a superimposed image of Jesus Christ. Ben and Elsie then gaze into the distance before the final title card reads, quote, Liberty and Union, one and inseparable, now and forever. Yeah, that's the movie. Griffith feared that the film might not recoup their $100,000 budget, so he and Dixon took it on a city-by-city roadshow hoping to drum up buzz. By the second screening, lines went around the block and people were being turned away. The reaction wasn't all positive. In Los Angeles, a chapter of the then-little-known NAACP requested the city's film board ban the movie, leading a public education campaign of petitions and articles protesting the film's inaccuracies. Their efforts were unsuccessful in banning the film, and in fact gave it even more publicity. As writer David Levering Lewis wrote in his biography of W.E.B. Du Bois, quote, 
the birth of a nation, and the NAACP helped make each other. Civil rights activists across the country lambasted the film. Dixon responded by denying the film had any anti-black prejudice, and instead claimed that it was merely about the horrors of war, and that black people who criticized him were, quote, unwittingly denouncing one of their greatest friends. To offset the negative press, Dixon wanted to get a big endorsement. He found it in the White House. Woodrow Wilson was a Southern Democrat from Augusta, Georgia. Seen as a moderate for the progressive education policies he instituted while president of Princeton University, Wilson was elected as the 28th president of the United States in 1913 because the Republican vote was split between incumbent bathtub enthusiast William Howard Taft and bloodthirsty adrenaline junkie Teddy Roosevelt. Wilson had already been friends with Thomas Dixon Jr. They were grad students together at John Hopkins University. Dixon dedicated one of his novels to Wilson, and used several Wilson quotes throughout The Birth of a Nation as inner titles. On February 18, 1915, Dixon and Griffith held a private screening attended by Wilson, his family, and cabinet members. It was the first film ever shown at the White House. Dixon and Griffith would later use the president's endorsement to stave off calls to ban the film. The next day, they held a screening in the Raleigh Hotel Ballroom. There, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Edward Douglas White, revealed that he had been a member of the Klan in his youth. At White's behest, the entire Supreme Court, 38 senators, 50 members of the House of Representatives, and hundreds more federal employees cheered the film. Audiences across the country flocked to see the spectacle and the controversy. Screenings were held in front of enraptured crowds who had never before seen such a dramatic story brought to life on the screen. Shouts, laughter, gasps, and applause filled the theater. At one screening, a man was so moved by the scene in which Flora runs into the forest that he took out his gun and started shooting at the screen in an effort to help her. The birth of a nation was what the title proclaimed. It single-handedly gave birth to the new powerhouse of mass media. It was the cinema's first mega-blockbuster, generating a box office somewhere between 50 and 100 million dollars. That's 1915 money. In a 2015 Time Magazine article, journalist Richard Corliss estimated that adjusted for inflation, Birth of a Nation earned the equivalent of 1.8 billion dollars at the box office. At the time, it had only been surpassed by Titanic and Avatar. But the film gave birth to so much more. After the film premiered in Atlanta on December 6th, William Joseph Simmons revived the Klan by holding a cross-burning ceremony on Stone Mountain. From this point on, white robes and burning crosses would be the signatures of the KKK, and by the mid-1920s, the reborn Klan's membership grew to an estimated 5 million members. Violent reactions to the film were not limited to shooting at the screen. A recent paper from Harvard University calculated, quote, on average, lynchings in a county rose five-fold in the month after the film was shown. The NAACP continued to push for a national boycott, and did manage to convince 12 mayors to ban the film. Eventually, The Birth of a Nation was banned in three states. In response to The Birth of a Nation, Noble Johnson and George Johnson founded the first black-owned production company, the Lincoln Motion Picture Company in Omaha, Nebraska. 
Their first short, The Realization of a Negro's Ambition, would be the first representation of a black middle class on screen. They were soon followed by the Frederick Douglass Film Company, which produced The Colored American Winning His Suit, which is a love story about a young black lawyer and the daughter of a successful black family. These were just two of the earliest examples of what would become known as race films, films that were made for black audiences and screened in predominantly segregated theaters. It's estimated that throughout the 20s, 30s, and 40s, there were over 150 independent production companies producing race films. And although many of these were funded, owned, and operated by white filmmakers, they would give opportunities to talented black performers such as Paul Robeson, Clarence Muse, Hattie McDaniel, and eventually Dorothy Dandridge and Cecily Tyson. But the most famous director of these films was a brilliant polymath from Chicago who blazed the trail for future generations of black independent filmmakers, and it would be impossible to continue this story without him. His name is Oscar Michaud. Michaud was born on a farm in Metropolis, Illinois in 1884. One of 13 children, his father had been enslaved in Kentucky prior to the war. He watched as his father and mother struggled to work their way out of poverty. At one point, they moved to a city to give their kids a better education, but the family ran out of money and was forced to return to the farm to survive. Michaud was a restless and rebellious kid, and his father eventually sent him away to work. Michaud moved to Chicago when he was 17. Briefly living with his brother, he worked in a restaurant, the Chicago stockyards, and a steel mill. Eventually, he earned a profitable position working as a sleeper car porter for the Pullman Railroad. After several years, he had saved a few thousand dollars, traveled all over the country, and had made connections with several wealthy white people who would help him in his future endeavors. Inspired by Booker T. Washington's message that hard work could make any person rise to respect and prominence, Michaud took a huge risk. Using the money he saved, he bought a large plot of land in Gregory County, South Dakota through the Homestead Act. He was convinced that in order to escape the horrors of racism, black Americans needed to be entrepreneurial and not see themselves as victims of injustice. He wrote over a hundred letters to friends and relatives, encouraging them to join him and create a new black utopia on the frontier. None listened. Instead, Oscar, along with his new wife, Orlean McCracken, the daughter of a prominent yet corrupt Chicago preacher, moved to South Dakota to become a homesteader. Michaud was the only black farmer in the area, possibly in all of South Dakota. Needless to say, he did not speak much to his neighbors. But driven by his dream of self-sufficiency, he worked and plowed his estate, eventually building a sizable profit. But he was deceived. He went away on business, leaving his pregnant wife home alone. After giving birth to their child, she emptied the bank accounts and fled. Her father then sold Michaud's property and took all the money for himself. Michaud returned home to find his wife gone and his entire life's work destroyed, not by his white neighbors, but by his in-laws. Understandably, Michaud had some things he needed to get off his chest. 
he used what little money he had to spend all of 1912 writing a book. And in 1913, he published 1,000 copies of his autobiographical novel, The Conquest, The Story of a Negro Pioneer. At first, the book was published anonymously, most likely to avoid retaliation from his ex-wife's family, whom he depicts in the book as decadent, morally corrupt race traders. The book sold, and Michaud went on writing several more novels, until he was approached by George Johnson of the Lincoln Motion Picture Company. Johnson wanted to adapt The Conquest into a film, but when he refused to let Michaud work on the production, Michaud backed out of the deal and instead founded the Michaud Film and Book Company in Sioux City, Iowa. He contacted the rich people he had met as a porter and sold stock in his new venture at $75 to $100 a share. He adapted his novel into a screenplay, hired actors Charles D. Lucas, Iris Hall, and 23-year-old Evelyn Preer, and shot the film on location in Winter, South Dakota. At eight reels in length, The Homesteader is thought to be the first black-produced, written, directed, and acted feature film. Unfortunately, no prints of the film seem to have survived. Michaud mounted his own successful publicity campaign, generating a profit and in the process turning Evelyn Preer into the first African-American movie star within the black community. She would go on to star in many more Michaud films, including Within Our Gates, The Brute, The Devil's Disciple, The Spider's Web, and many others. She crossed over into theater, joining the Harlem-based Lafayette Players, which was an all-black theater group, again founded after the release of Birth of a Nation, which mounted challenging modern plays as well as classical productions, proving once again that black actors could perform roles with intelligence, depth, and nuance. She acted in the Ethiopian Art Theater's production of The Chip Woman's Fortune, which was the first play by a black playwright to be produced on Broadway. And eventually, Preer transitioned into talkies, appearing in Joseph von Sternberg's 1932 film Blonde Venus alongside Cary Grant and Marlena Dietrich. Sadly, Evelyn Preer died after giving birth to her only child in 1932. She was 36 years old. While promoting The Homesteader in 1919, Michaud moved back to Chicago. His return coincided with thousands of soldiers returning from the First World War. However, many were coming back to find their city radically changed. During the war, the first Great Migration had begun. Hundreds of thousands of African Americans moved from the Jim Crow South, seeking work opportunities in northern factories that had seen most of their workforce join the army. Many white soldiers, conditioned to racial prejudice by a lifetime of black stereotypes on stage and screen, and now having been exposed to the horrific violence of trench warfare, came back to find their jobs taken by black workers, and their city's black populations nearly doubled since the beginning of the war. While many black soldiers returned from Europe, having experienced freedom and empowerment for the first time in their lives. As a black veteran wrote in the Chicago Daily News, quote, they are new men and world men. They have awakened, but have not yet the complete conception of what they have awakened to. W.E.B. Du Bois added in the monthly NAACP magazine, quote, We are cowards and jackasses if now that the war is over, we do not marshal every ounce of our brain and brawn to fight a sterner, longer, more unbending battle against the forces of hell in our own land. 
The combination of these two groups proved deadly. The situation was made worse by Woodrow Wilson, who was too busy on his foreign policy pet project, the League of Nations, to have any domestic plan for reintegrating soldiers into the job market. He rapidly demobilized the country, leading to post-war inflation and an economic crash, and then blamed his administration's failures on something else. In his book, Red Summer, the summer of 1919 and the awakening of black America, author Cameron McWhorter quotes President Wilson in a private conversation, saying, quote, The American Negro returning from abroad would be our greatest medium in conveying Bolshevism to America. By early 1919, the smoldering racial tension was combined with the gasoline of America's first Red Scare. As a young J. Edgar Hoover mobilized the first raids against suspected communists, conspiracies spread that black soldiers had returned from Europe infected with the mental virus of Bolshevism and its promise of labor rights and racial equality. As spring turned to summer, violent outbursts began popping up all across the country. In April, violence in Jenkins County, Georgia, left six dead and black businesses burned. In May, four white U.S. sailors initiated a riot in Charleston, which left five whites and 18 black men dead. In early July, the police department of Bisbee, Arizona, openly attacked the African-American 10th U.S. Cavalry, also known as the Buffalo Soldiers. By mid-July, Washington, D.C. was consumed by four days of mob violence that left 15 people dead and over 150 injured. In the aftermath, the NAACP sent a telegram to President Wilson that read, quote, The shame put upon the country by the mobs, including United States soldiers, sailors, and Marines, which have assaulted innocent and unoffending Negroes in the nation's capital, the effect of such riots upon race antagonism will be to increase bitterness and danger of outbreaks elsewhere. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People calls upon you as President and Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of the Nation to make a statement condemning mob violence and to enforce such military law as the situation demands. Wilson said nothing. Four days later, Eugene Williams, a black teenager, went swimming at the unofficially segregated 29th Street Beach on the south side of Chicago. While holding on to a floating railroad tie, he inadvertently crossed an unmarked and unregulated color line. Suddenly, the water around him began to splash, and he heard shouting. A single white man standing on a nearby breakwater was pelting him with stones. While other white beachgoers attempted to stop the assault, a stone hit Eugene Williams in the head. He lost consciousness and disappeared beneath the water. The murderer ran from the scene. His identity would never be known. A black police officer arrived on the scene, attempting to find the man who killed Eugene. He was stopped and arrested by a white police officer. When a crowd of black observers protested, they were attacked by a crowd of whites, and soon the south side of Chicago was consumed in an orgy of mob violence. In an attempt to mobilize other European communities to the carnage, Irish street gangs wore blackface and set fire to immigrant homes. At one point, a white mob attempted to burn down an African-American hospital, but were held off by police. Over a week of violence, 
38 people were killed, 537 were injured, and 1,000 residents were left homeless. Over two-thirds of the victims were black. In the aftermath, factories in Chicago's predominantly black Southside neighborhoods were closed. At the Union Stockyard, over 15,000 black workers were let go, with management banning African-American employees out of fear of future rioting. Illinois Attorney General Edward Brundage prepared a grand jury investigation against violent actors and handed down 17 death penalty indictments, all against African Americans. Still, the Red Summer continued. At least 23 more violent incidents took place between late July and December of 1919. Black sociologist and scholar George Haynes published a national call to action in major newspapers, citing widespread lynching as the precursor to mass violence. Yet at almost every level, government officials blamed everyone but the white perpetrators. J. Edgar Hoover repeated the lies from the birth of a nation, claiming the D.C. riot was started by, quote, numerous assaults committed by Negroes upon white women. He then opened an investigation into, quote, Negro activities and hired black undercover agents to spy on black organizations. In a report to Congress, Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer blamed black leaders for a, quote, ill-governed reaction towards race rioting. In all discussions of the recent racial riots, there is reflected the note of pride that the Negro has found himself, that he has fought back, that never again will he tamely submit to violence and intimidation. In response to all this, Oscar Michaud wrote his next film. Released in 1920, Within Our Gates was about a mixed-race school teacher named Sylvia Landry, as she tries to raise enough money to save her underfunded school. The film deals with racial injustice, class, urban versus rural tensions, and interracial relationships, following the lives of several educated, professional, and dare I say normal, black people. In a cinematic flashback, Michaud intercut scenes of Sylvia's adoptive father being lynched for a crime he didn't commit, with Sylvia almost being raped by a wealthy white man, Philip Griddlestone. Upon recognizing a scar on Sylvia's chest, Griddlestone realizes Sylvia is his illegitimate daughter. By juxtaposing a black man punished for sexual assaults he didn't commit with the far more real sexual violence that white men perpetrated against black women, Michaud dared to put the truth of the black experience onto screen. Within Our Gates was produced on a shoestring budget. Michaud had to borrow costumes. He didn't even have enough film stock to reshoot any scenes. He fought for months to get past film censor boards, and while the film had limited runs in only a handful of cities, it was an important step to Michaud's continued career as an independent filmmaker. For decades, historians believed that this film, Within Our Gates, was lost like so many others. But in the 1970s, a single print was discovered in Spain. It has since been restored and is available to watch online. Michaud would go on to have a 30-year career as an independent filmmaker, continuing to tell stories about the truth of contemporary black life. His work is brazen, tender, but above all defined by unflinching honesty and a willingness to criticize the things he saw as wrong, both in and out of the black community. When asked about this, Michaud said, quote, 
My results might have been narrow at times, due perhaps to certain limited situations, which I endeavored to portray, but in those limited situations, the truth was the predominant characteristic. It is only by presenting those portions of the race portrayed in my pictures, in the light and background of their true state, that we can raise our people to greater heights. I am too imbued with the spirit of Booker T. Washington to engraft false virtues upon ourselves, to make ourselves that which we are not. Oscar Michaud lived to the age of 67. He was buried in Great Bend, Kansas, with a gravestone that read, A Man Ahead of His Time. Michaud's groundbreaking films were just a part of the artistic milieu that made Chicago one of the epicenters of African-American art in the 1920s. Despite the increased professional and housing discrimination as a result of the 1919 race massacre, African-Americans continued to move to Chicago in ever-increasing numbers. From 1910 to 1930, Chicago's black population increased from 44,000 to 230,000. The segregated South Side became known as the Black Belt. This area was home to a renaissance of black art. Louis Armstrong and King Oliver made the nighttime streets echo with jazz, while Big Bill Brunzi and Kokomo Arnold transformed the folk songs of the Mississippi Delta into the Chicago blues. Thomas Dorsey and Mahalia Jackson became the respective father and queen of gospel music, all while Richard Wright, Gwendolyn Brooks, and Margaret Parks punched the keys of their typewriters. And it was into this world that a young boy would be born named Melvin Van Peebles. And cut. On the next episode, Melvin Van Peebles grows up split between Chicago's South Side and the suburbs. With a personality and brilliance that sets him apart in all situations, he goes to college, joins the Air Force, moves to France, and redefines art along the way. Behind the Slate is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. If you like what you heard, subscribe, rate, write a little review. It takes you five seconds. It helps me out a lot. If you know someone who you think would like this show, please let them know. Word of mouth is so important for this little DIY podcast to grow. As always, if you have any questions, comments, you just want to say hi, shoot me an email at behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. That's behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at behindtheslatepod, on TikTok at behindtheslatepod. And until next time, that's a wrap. Some morning, some groaning, some groaning, some morning. Just listen, hot raining, just listen, hot raining, just listen, hot raining, just listen, well, hot raining, well, just listen, don't hot raining, oh, just listen, don't hot raining, well, just listen, this hot raining, well, just listen.